0: All right, I think the only announcements that we have tonight, number one, there's no Bible class Thursday night because it is Thanksgiving, and announcement number two is that we had some of the uh, Caroling to Christmas books. We picked up about 20 or 25 extra, and we put those out uh, for anyone who needs them. Are they gone? They're gone. Okay, so you can also order that. I think there's, you can get them electronically from um, dinner on the 10th. Okay, we're having our Christmas, Thanksgiving, Christmas dinner on Sunday the 10th following the uh, morning morning worship service. So be ready for that. There'll be sign-ups, uh, sign-ups in the back. Um, you can order the Carol to, Caroling to Christmas book uh, digitally from uh, Amazon and I think hard copy as well. And so those make good gifts. I've been surprised how many people have said, well, I ordered 20, now I've ordered 20 more because I'm giving them away as, a, as little presents to people I run into. So that's a, that's, a, that's a good good thing. No Bible class, caroling to Christmas, September 10th. Okay, that covers everything. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, so we can be in right relationship with the Lord. For those of you who have not heard, uh, David Dunn went into a, got out of ICU last night, late last night, and he is in a private room and doing well, uh, walking um, two or three laps around the hall, and just uh, God has just really blessed him, and all of this has just come together really well, so we can just be, so very thankful for that, and the possibility is that he will be going home by the middle to the end of next week. So that's that's the latest, but we all know that anything can change. So we need to be in prayer for that, as well as for uh, Ukraine. Jim and Phyllis are back, and they'll be, um, I think they're going down to Brazil, or Jim's going down to Brazil in another three or four weeks, and then... A few other things coming up. You can be in prayer for us because we are in the planning stages of going to Poland in uh, May. We'll go to Poland, go to Krakow. We'll be speaking in a couple of churches there, and then we'll be going down to Romania and doing some uh, conferences down there. So that will be in mid- Uh, mid-May. So that will be a great opportunity and an opportunity also to connect with some of the students and other Ukrainians we know that are either in Romania or in, in Poland. So that'll be coming up in May. All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and I'll open in prayer after a few moments of silent prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come to you in prayer, that we have uh, access to you because the way has been opened by our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, because of his work on the cross, and that we have access to you and we can come and pray on the basis of his work on the cross, and we know that um, when we come to you in faith that you hear our prayers, and so, Father, we are thankful this week for many things, but we're thankful that David Dunn is doing so well and answered prayer there. Father, we also pray for Israel. We pray for the people we know in Israel, those that are not saved. We pray this would be a time when they could focus their attention upon their spiritual life. For those that are believers, those working with Chosen People Ministries, those working with Friends of Israel, Builders of Israel, several other organizations, we pray that you would just give them great opportunities and just the right words to uh, talk to people and present the gospel. Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might be faithful and steadfast with your word, and that tonight as we go into this next uh, next module in Interlock, that as we begin to talk about this shift to Israel, that you'll help us to uh, understand the significance of what is taking place in, in Genesis 12. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, you might want to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to start a new section tonight. This section, this next module, uh, really shifts gears from what God was doing with mankind as a whole prior to the Tower of Babel and shifting gears to what's next. In the previous section, we go through our um, uh, timeline where we went through the creation, the uh, fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel. In the creation, we were reminded that God created all things. He is the creator and that everything else is part of the creation and that uh, man was created at the top of the creation as God's representative on the earth created in his image and likeness. And so that image and likeness has this idea that he is a representative of God to rule over the planet. But he violated his responsibilities, disobeyed God uh, in the garden, uh, disobeyed the one and only prohibition, which was to not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that act... He portrays what we all do all the time is we look at situations in life and decide what we think is right without asking the question, well, God, what do you say about it? And this is what happens with Eve when she's tempted by the serpent, that instead of uh, saying, well, that's an interesting hypothesis, Snakey, Let's see what God has to say about it. She just immediately assumed that the serpent knew what he was talking about, and so she followed his advice and ate from the fruit, and that led to her giving to Adam, and uh, that brought corruption into all of God's creation. This idea of the sinfulness of sin, the extent of the corruption of sin, is one that is often uh, belittled, or is minimized or diluted um, by many people. We don't like to think of ourselves as being um, potential murderers, adulterers, liars, criminals, rapists, but we have a sin nature. And any human being is capable of any level of sin. Because uh, if we turn ourselves over to our sin nature, and begin to listen to it, then it can lead us into some of the most horrific uh, sins. And we've seen numerous strong believers over the centuries who have gone into uh, just horrific sin because of uh, complete failure to follow the Scriptures. And so it's important to understand that. And we see this played out. In the first, um, in the next three chapters in Genesis, in Genesis 4, 5, and 6, the bottom line is they start, you start with murder in the very first generation, the first two sons of Adam and Eve. You have Cain murders his brother. Uh, You have a short genealogy that ends with a, uh, about four generations later, you have uh, Lamech who brags about the fact that he has committed murder and he also has uh, violated the uh, second divine institution of marriage. God had instituted uh, these sort of social laws, social structures. He designed man to function within these social structures. First of all, uh, responsible choice. Second, marriage. And third, family. Family. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 4, all of those have been corrupted and are breaking down. Chapter 5 starts with the genealogy of the descendants of Adam through Seth. Then by the time you get into the beginning of chapter 6, God's conclusion is that the entire human race is is so corrupt and uh, so self-destructive and so dominated by evil He says the thoughts of his heart are evil continuously, that he is going to hit the reset button. This is is unbelievable. We don't think about this, that God killed probably four or five billion people in the flood because the world was out of control in terms of the sin nature. And so he's going to start over again with uh, with Noah. Uh, they get off the ark there's eight of them they're all believers, they all understand the truth they all know this the creation story they they know everything that has led up to this uh, dis, this um, uh, horrific worldwide cataclysm to reshape the world and they come off of the ark and they are going to be the progenitors of all human beings uh, from that point on. And yet by the time we get past several generations, we find that within one particular line in the uh, line of Ham, you have another uh, revolt against God and that they are led by this powerful figure by the name of Nimrod. And he has them gathered together Uh, Instead of scattering, as God had said, uh, he's going to gather them together and build a city and build a tower. And according to Josephus, uh, part of the reason for this is this anger against God because of all that happened as a result of, of the flood. And so they're asserting their, their power over God. They're going to do what they want to do instead of what God wants to do. So you're back in the same horrific kind of situation that led to the uh, destruction of the human race initially. And so this is uh, what happens. And God, God is going to see this rebellion that takes place And so now, rather than the people scattering on their own, God is going to come down, and he will uh, scatter uh, scatter their languages, which will scatter the people. And so they would not scatter of their own responsible choice, so God is going to force this scattering. And so that scattering causes the uh, those who speak different languages to come together and to uh, leave the others and go off on their own for their own um, own protection and to uh, pursue their own uh, their own culture so this the problem one of the problems that this develops is that up to this point God's story was told in one language that could be communicated to the uh, entire world. And now there's multiple languages that the truth of the creation, the truth of, of sin, the truth of God's plan for redemption is first stated in Genesis 3.15 that he would uh, provide a promised Savior, the seed of the woman who would destroy the seed of the serpent. And all of that is getting muddled up. We saw that after after the flood, that they, they start developing their uh, own ideas about creation. They develop other gods and goddesses that they're work, worshiping. So you have uh, all of these things going on, but now it seems to be made much worse by the confusion of the languages. So how is God going to continue to reach out uh, to the human race. You see this demonstration in God that he desires uh, to save people. He desires to save as many as he can. God is pictured in many places as one who uh, desires uh, to care for the people. And um, Yet the people turn away from him, but he continues to reach out to them. He is a picture of a picture of grace, and in Matthew chapter five, and starting in verse 43. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who bless you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now that's a really interesting statement because it's not the end of his statement. He goes on to say that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying basically that you are to imitate God. God is one who loves his enemies. The enemies are those who have declared themselves against God and disobedient to God among the human race. But God loves them, and he's going to provide a salvation for them. Uh, God is the one who reaches out to them. God is the one who... uh, is constantly providing for them. He, um, the sun rises on the evil and on the good. Uh, the uh, it rains on the just and on the unjust. So, so there's this picture of God reaching out to everyone, and how God does that is going to be uh, related to what happens here in the uh, call of Abraham. And so the issue in this first section is. Who's going to tell God's story? How is God's story going to be communicated? How is it going to be revealed? How is it going to be uh, preserved uh, down through the generations? And so the sections at the first part of this lesson that we'll be looking at tonight is the uh, God's plan for Abraham, which focuses on the Abrahamic covenant. So we'll look at these three, three areas, the parties to the Abrahamic covenant, The legal terms of the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise of a land for the descendants of Abraham, his promise of innumerable descendants to Abraham through his son Isaac and Jacob, and the promise of worldwide blessing from his descendants, and that the promised Savior would be Abram's descendant. And then the signing of the Abrahamic covenant. So I don't think we'll get to number three. So who will tell God's story? So we saw in our review, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, their wives lived through the flood, knew of man's early history. But they would be dead 500 years later. So who's going to carry on the story? And we've seen that just as it was before the flood, people gave in to their sin natures, were wicked and rebellious towards God, and worshipped themselves as the ultimate source of truth. They weren't interested in the truth. Third, we've seen that when God judged the people of Babel, he created many languages. And this meant that there were, uh, would be no global language anymore uh, through which the story of God's plan of salvation could be told. And as the Ice Age ended, the tribes and the nations were scattering to the uh, uh, four corners of the earth. So who's going to be responsible for preserving and uh, teaching uh, God's story? We saw that um, there's a conflict now. On the left side of this chart, we, um, we see the beginning in a minute. Okay. See so the beginning you have Noah and his family or all are believers in Yahweh. Then uh, most people rebelled against God and rejected his history and truth. This led to the Tower of Babel which represents the pagan kingdom of man. Now depending on how old the kids are that you're teaching what you can begin to explain is that uh, especially when, if they're in high school is that there's a all throughout the Bible, there's this conflict between Jerusalem and Babylon, and it begins here with the Tower of Babel. A Tower of Babel represents all that is evil in the human race, and by the time we get to the end of time, as it's described in um, uh, in Revelation, there's a, a, a re, there's a resurrection, as it were, of ancient Babylon of the empire of Babylon. Uh, there'll be a power base in Babylon. And uh, a lot of people over history have taken that word Babylon as as a, uh, well, just a spiritual code word for Rome. You'll hear that. But there's no place in the Bible that ever uses it that way. And uh, so that was read into it Due to other problems, so you have the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God, human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint, uh, man's way or God's way, and those who are those who are following man's way, their ultimate destiny is the lake of fire. Their rejection of of God and God's solution then God is going to intervene to preserve his history and truth. He's going to call out Abram. He's going to do something very different from anything that he has done before. And so we need to understand the significance of that. And this is what comes to play in the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is a, a phenomenal event. It's phenomenal because it is the linchpin or the turning point or the centerpiece, however you want to describe it, of, of human history. Of what is said here is the, is the key to understanding all of human history. I remember when I was working on my uh, doctorate in uh, church history, and you, one semester was just on historiography. Historiography is the uh, uh, it lo- looks at the various ways in which history is understood. You have people who have an economic interpretation of history, and so everything turns on on economics. The most well known is Karl Marx. He's got an economic interpretation of history. It's the you know the haves against the have-nots. And then you have others who look at a uh, geographical interpretation of history, that history is determined and caused by where different civilizations are located geographically. You have others that would use a military uh, interpretation. There's all kinds of different models of how to interpret uh, history. And there's some truth in all of them, otherwise they just wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't get anywhere. But the one thing that you discover, all of these come out of human viewpoint. All of these come out of different philosophies that just give, at best, lip service to a- any kind of uh, theological significance. But if you read the Bible... Everything in history is related to how the human race relates to God. And I have said this for 40 or 50 years, that the key to understanding anything is ultimately what is their view of God? What was that person's view of God? Because everything flows out out of that. And so when you look at history, we recognize that the ultimate causative issue isn't trade, it isn't commerce, it isn't money, it isn't ports, Um, it's not uh, related to geographical locations, it's related to God's sovereign purpose in history. He raises up kingdoms and he takes down kingdoms. And ultimately all of that is related to how they are responding uh, to God in history and how they relate to Israel. Because God raised up kingdoms like Assyria. One of the primary purposes was that God would use them to bring divine judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel and judgment to an extent upon the southern kingdom. He raised up Babylon, and that was to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. And then what happened? He raised up Persia to destroy the Babylonians and under Cyrus to send uh, the Jews in in, uh, Persia uh, back to the land to rebuild the temple and to provide a Jewish civilization in the land for the Messiah to come. Uh, All of this turns on God's plan and it turns on Abraham. There are a lot of other past, uh, things that are going on, but th- the Abrahamic covenant is central to understand things. Uh, today we're seeing this awful rise of anti-Semitism in the universities, and we're seeing these horrible riots because of the uh, Hamas war in Israel. And so there's, all of a sudden people are realizing there's a level of anti-Semitism in this country that nobody suspected. And uh, God will bring a judgment uh, against that if that is something isn't done to stifle that. Now, I don't think it's quite as bad as a lot of people think it is. I think it's bad. I think it's much worse than we thought it was. But there there are vast numbers of people who are not anti-Semitic and hate anti-Semitism and are standing against that uh, in this country. And so we'll just see how, how things... Uh, how things go, but everything comes back to the Abrahamic covenant and how a people treat Israel. And that really becomes, we'll see, the sixth divine uh, institution. So we will be looking at at this as the ultimate, ultimate cause. Two things that we'll see uh, are causation in history is, is how people treat Israel and the Abrahamic Covenant. But the Abrahamic Covenant, as we'll see, has three components to it. It has a promise of land, it has a promise of descendants, and it has a promise of worldwide blessing. Each of those components will be expanded in a subsequent covenant. There's a land covenant that reaffirms that God has given this land, that the exact borders that he gave to Abraham to belong to uh, Abraham's descendants in perpetuity forever and ever. It's not a, um, it, there's not a time lapse, there's not a condition placed upon that. Then you have the descendants, and we'll see that is expanded as well. That innumerable uh, descendants, and then worldwide blessing, which ultimately is found in Jesus Christ and the arrival, uh, the arrival of the of the Messiah. But at the core of this is the idea of covenant. We've talked about covenant some before. We've talked about it with the creation covenant. Uh, we've talked about it as that is modified in the covenant with Adam, and then it's modified again into its current uh, current state with the covenant with Noah. And if you're teaching kids, it's important to teach them this concept of covenant and that, that the covenant is a, is a contract or an agreement, a promise from God. All of the the covenants we've seen so far are everlasting covenants. The creation covenant is modified, but it's never canceled. It's modified because of sin, and then it's modified because of the judgment of the worldwide flood, but it is still in effect. And then the Abrahamic covenant is also an unconditional covenant. It's interesting, this last week, I think I mentioned this the other day, I was uh, out walking and talking to a neighbor, an elderly woman who uh, I've met and talked to various times along the way. And I know she's a Christian. She knows I'm a pastor, Uh, but she started talking about Israel, and she's very pro-Israel, very very conservative. But her background is Presbyterian, and she made some comment to me. I think it was later in a text. She was texting me about a number of different things later. And she made the comment that, well, God, she said, I believe that God will resolve things with the Jewish people eventually, but the covenant with Abraham is not in effect anymore. And this is typical within covenant theology. This is typical within uh, replacement theology. But um, I explained to her also in a text that I had taught covenants uh, course on covenants in on the biblical covenants in Kiev for 23 years, and I have read through all of the covenant passages innumerable times, and I don't see a condition anywhere. And if she can find one, please let me know. But every place they're stated that not only the Abrahamic covenant, but the three other covenants related to it, are all said to be eternal or everlasting covenants. They are not conditional. And a good thing if you're teaching kids is to talk about a promise and the importance of a promise and keeping your word and does God keep his word? And if God made a promise is God going to keep his word even when people completely violate um, and disobey him? And see God never put any condition upon Abraham and we'll see that as we go, uh, as we go through this. So what we see is that following the uh, scattering of human beings after the uh, dispersion of their languages and the confusion of their languages at the Tower of Babel. God decides instead of working through the entirety of the human race, he is going to work now through one man and his descendants. But we all know that because God is omniscient he didn't just wake up one day and go, I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have confused their languages like that. Now what am I going to do to get my message out? You know, God always understood this. This was always God's plan. And you see it embedded in that promise to, uh, to Eve as a statement is made that the, the seed of the woman, uh, which is a very unusual phrase because uh, the seed, seed is what males produce. Eggs are what women produce. So the seed of the woman is a phrase that make, should make you what is he talking about there? And then we skip ahead to the prophecy about the virgin birth and it begins to make sense. So we realize that even in that first hint of a promise of redemption, there's this suggestion that God already knows how things are going to work out and his plan's gonna, uh, going to work out And so God is going to work with this man named uh, Abram. And he's going to preserve history and truth through him and his descendants. And we could think, well, why did God choose him? Did God choose him because Abram was special? Did God choose him because he was uh, more righteous than anybody, that he was more religious than anybody uh, was there something within Abram that that God said, uh, God saw and said, "Okay, because you've been such a good man, I'm going to, I'm going to do this." And there's a sense in which that that uh, would come to play, but we know that um, that it's it's more than that. Genesis 15:6 is a is a parenthetical statement in the flow of the narrative in that chapter. And it reminds us that Abram had already believed God and God imputed it to him as righteousness. So Abram has imputed righteousness. And because Abram has been faithful, God rewards him with a covenant. But this is not in the sense of uh, something that Abram knew about. It's just that God chose to do this. It is in the format of the covenants of the ancient world, it was called a royal grant. So you would have a king, and the king would have a loyal servant. And the king, the loyal servant, um, has done well and he's been faithful. So the king says, "I'm going to uh, give you this property. I'm going to give you this estate." And so, uh, and with it goes certain responsibilities. So it fits the pattern of this. Uh, uh, royal grant that that uh, is totally based upon the character of the king giving it. And so we read in Genesis uh, twelve one. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Now this is really interesting. He chooses Abram out of his omniscience. He doesn't choose Abram because Abram is some holier-than-thou individual, but because God is going to work through him in a unique way. In fact, God states in Deuteronomy that I, that he didn't choose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't choose the Jewish people because they were so great because he said, you are a stiff-necked people. So I think in one sense God chose Abram because his descendants were not going to be uh, be goody two-shoes, they weren't going to be holier than thou, they were going to be stiff-necked and rebellious and God was going to make them a trophy of grace. And that's what comes out of, out of Deuteronomy. But as an individual, Abram is living in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, and I'll put the map up in just a second. But God just tells him, get out of your country, leave your family, pay attention to that phrase, and from your father's house to a land I will show you. Pack your bags, load up the, um, uh, the cart and leave. He doesn't tell him where to go. He doesn't give him GPS coordinates. He doesn't tell him how to use a a Google map so that he can get to his destination. He doesn't give him any information at all about the information. He just says, get out of your country. It's a test of obedience. A test to see if he'll do exactly as God says. And he he sort of passes it halfway. Here's a map of the area we're talking about. He lives in Ur of the Chaldees which is the red dot down in the lower right which is down near, the, this is the Persian Gulf down here so this is at the lower southeastern area of what is called the Fertile Crescent. Uh, up north of him is Babel where the tower was built and where they rebelled against God. Further north is Nineveh which is going to be the capital of Assyria, of the later Assyrian Empire. And he will leave, and he goes north up the Euphrates River uh, to this a town in the northwest of Syria called Haran. But he doesn't leave his family. He takes his nephew with him and his father with him. So he's sort of obedient, but not all the way. And uh, what we know about what, what God is doing here, and the reason he want, God wants him to leave Ur is because God wants him to be separate from the culture around him, which is completely paganized and it's polytheistic. They worship many gods. And at that time in history, what was, what was typical is you would have a city and whoever the god was uh, that the head of the city wanted everyone to worship, that's who they worshiped. And so it, it seems that, the, uh, god that of the, 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 the god in the pantheon of, of, their, of their gods and goddesses that they worshipped in Ur was the moon god. And that's interesting because Allah in Islam was one of 360 deities that the Arabs worshipped and he was the moon god. I don't know if there's a connection there, but I find that to be that there aren't coincidences like that in God's world. So Joshua 24.2 Joshua is speaking to the people as they're going into this paganized Canaanite area. It says to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, that's Abraham's brother, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. So he's in Canaan, and he is, um, okay, he's in Canaan when he's saying that. So the river is the Euphrates, and he's talking about Ur over on the other side, okay? And they were, served other gods, so it's a polytheistic culture, and God wants him to separate. And this is interesting because the big problem that the Jews had in, the, in Genesis, with with um, uh, uh, especially Jacob, and and uh, later his sons, is that they're assimilating to the culture around them, and they and God has to take them to Egypt to get them to really separate. Uh, because the, the Egyptians were so prejudiced against the Semites that they wouldn't have anything to do with them. So the cultural pressure to assimilate uh, wasn't there. So God, from the very beginning, sees this need for Abraham and his descendants to be uh, to be separated out from the pagan culture to protect them for the mission that God has for them. So the people rebelled at Babel, Abraham's father was a polytheist, worshipped other gods, but God called Abram to separate from the evil culture and to follow follow God alone. Now, what's going on here? Uh, We have to remember that the rest of the world has turned their back on God. It is not that they don't know that God exists. In order to understand this um, and what is going on, we have to go to Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter one verses twenty three to twenty four, we read, uh, and this is a this this narrative that really starts in one eighteen, where we'll go in just a minute, that the it's describing what happened after the flood, that the people rejected the knowledge of God. They knew God existed, they knew who God was, they knew who He stood for, but they turned their back on the worship of Yahweh, and they worshipped the creation. And creatures rather than the creator. So verse 23 says they changed the glory or exchanged was a better, would be a better translation. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. See, God is always reaching out to man. He gives them knowledge. He gives them uh, grace to the evil as well as to the good. And what happens is man rejects God's overtures. And this is what Paul is describing. It starts in Romans 1.18, he says, "...the wrath of God, which is God's judgment on sin in, in history and in time." And the wrath of God is revealed... And this is what's called a universal, a statement of a universal principle. It's a present tense, but it's talking about something that's universal. It started with the fall of of Adam in the garden, and it continues until God destroys evil at the end of the millennial kingdom. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is their characteristic. They're truth suppressors. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Okay, that's the first thing. This is God consciousness. What may be known of God is manifest in them. They know it. It's in them. For God has shown it to them. This is external. There is an external witness in God's creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. It's interesting, the Greek. It's his unseens are clearly seen, and that's to grab your attention because it sounds like it's a contradiction. Uh, his invisibles are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So, so there's something in our soul. That has a, a sort of a God focused resonator. And when, as you grow up and you look at a tree or a bird, or you look at, at the order and organization of the stars and the solar system, you look at the order of the world, there's something that resonates inside you that says, God created this and then you slap it down. You don't want to know about that because if there is a God, then you're in trouble. So it's clearly seen, understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. This means every human being reaches that level of God consciousness. Now, that's going to differ. See, if you you were to be born into some of the families in this congregation... Uh, families that talk to them about the Lord, talk to them about God, read Bible stories to them from the time they're infants, then they're going to reach God consciousness much earlier because it's being talked about all the time. But you go to some places on this planet where nobody ever talks about God, then they may not reach God consciousness till they're in their 20s. So culture and environment has a lot to do with when they reach that age. We're talking about uh, the age of accountability. Well, there's no particular age. Some people ask that question. Well, what age is the age of accountability? It's when you become God conscious. And that's going to vary from one person to another. So uh, it's being understood by the things that are made even as eternal power and Godhead. So they're without excuse. That means every person after that age of accountability is, is responsible for their choice to know God or not. Because although they knew God, see, that's what it's saying. Everybody knows God. They did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile Vain, empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It goes on to say, professing to be wise, they became fools. They've got triple PhDs, but they're living in a fantasy world that they think they can change from being a man to a woman. That they think that they can um, uh, change the laws of time and space. And then Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to uncleanness. You, you, basically they're saying, God, we want to do it our way. God says, have at it. Let's see what happens. God gives them the freedom to do that. And then it, it just gets worse. And the bottom line problem is verse 25, God, they uh, exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature Rather than creator. That takes us back to what we learned in Genesis 1, the creator creature distinction. And Acts 14, verse 16 and 17, talks about this same time period and talks about this as bygone generations allowed, God allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Now, he still has a witness to them, a nonverbal witness in the heavens and in the creation that they will be accountable for. And if they want to know about God, God will provide uh, some... I don't know how this works. I I haven't talked to anybody that had this as a first-hand experience. But I've read a lot of missionary stories uh, in the history of Christianity over the last 40 years and there, there seems to be many situations where some missionary has come to a primitive tribe that has never seen anybody from western civilization, never seen a Christian, never heard about anything, and when they first hear the gospel they say, I've been praying for you to come my whole life. I've been waiting for someone to come. I knew there was a God and I was waiting for this. So Nevertheless, verse 17, he did not leave himself without witness. What was that witness? In that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. God loves his creation. God loves human beings even when they're rebellious. God loves them and provides for them. And this is what we are to to emulate. So one of the things we learn as we look at this is some of the things about well just exactly what is what is God like. So in Genesis 12:1, God says to Abraham, leave your country, leave your family, your father's house, go to a land I will show you. And then he makes some promises. Now remember, God is omnipotent, so we have to think of who is talking here. This is, number one, this God can do whatever He needs to do to accomplish His purpose. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows what could happen, what might happen, what should have happened, and what will happen. And so He tells him, I will make you a great nation. Now that's a promise, and so that means that God will fulfill that promise. That he will make them a great nation. He doesn't say, "I'll make you a great nation next week, or next year, or in a thousand years, or in five thousand years." He says, "I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great." Now, I've looked at some of the other translations and some of the uh, paraphrases in the uh, other other translations, and you've got to translate it this way what happens at the beginning of chapter um, uh, about halfway through chapter 11 when they're building the Tower of Babel. The people came together and they wanted to make their name great. They wanted to, It was all about them. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to be the celebrity. They wanted to show that they were as great as God. And then we see the reverse. God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to you, give you the great reputation. Because Abram is a man of humility. I'll make your name great. And then he gives him a command, which doesn't come across in in English. But it's a command. It's, It's not a declarative statement that you will be a blessing. It's a command. You will be a blessing. You will bless the world. And the problem is you get a perversion of that in Judaism today. It's called the principle of Tikkun Olam. And this is the idea that Jews, their primary mission is to repair the world. And as this has morphed in the last a couple of hundred years, it really has lent itself to the concept of socialism, that you're going to bring in this, this perfect world. Uh, so, But God tells Abram, you shall be a blessing. That's your mission, is you will be a blessing to the world. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. Now that's the basis for the sixth divine institution. A divine institution is a social law that God institutes that is true for believer or unbeliever alike. If you have a pagan culture that honors marriage, honors family, honors personal choice, personal responsibility, the first three divine institutions, then you're going to have a stable culture. But if they, you, they violate those, then that culture is going to fall apart. Now, God doesn't say, I will bless those believers who bless you, does he? He says, I'm going to bless those, anyone, doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter if they're a Muslim, doesn't matter if they're a Hindu, doesn't matter if they're worshiping Satan. If they bless you, I will bless them. So that makes it a universal Principle. Anyone who blesses the Jewish people God will bless them. I have an illustration of this. When Jim Myers and, and and when I was able to bring Jim and Phyllis out of Ukraine when the war started last year, every single person that helped was somebody I had met in my pro-Israel activities. People I had met on an APAC trip that we were Christian leaders were invited to go at APAC's expense to go to Israel for for, uh, eight days. And one of the men on that trip was Jason Raper, a state senator in Arkansas. And when Pam sent out prayer requests that Robbie's trapped in in Ukraine, he texted me not knowing if I could even answer him. And I immediately answered, yep, I'm trapped here. He said, I'll get Senator Cotton on the phone and we'll get somebody to come, come rescue you. And so you all know that story. And then uh, as we were coming out, Greg Allen, who's pastor in, um, in Pennsylvania, texted me and said, are you going out through Poland? I said, no, through Romania. He said, well, I did mission, missions work about 10 years ago in Romania. Let me see if any of the pastors that I know are near your border crossing. And so he, five minutes later he texted me the name of Alex Luzerka and said, Alex lives 15 minutes from the border crossing. And so Alex picked us up and took care of us. And, and all along the way, it was, it was, uh, we, I was supported. In fact, uh, one rabbi here in Houston uh, contacted the chief rabbi of Ukraine who, said, who, who told him, give him my personal cell number and if he needs me to call me. By then I was already on my way out. But it's, it's that blessing of the Jewish people uh, you know, was part, part of that. So those who bless you, I, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curses you. And those are two different words in the Hebrew. The first word means those who treat you lightly, who disrespect you. I will harshly judge. That's the second meaning. There are two different meanings in the Greek. And in you all the earth will be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken, Lot went with him, he doesn't leave all of his family, and he goes to Haran. So God was saying to Abram that he would do three things. First of all, he would give him land, and he defines the land in the covenant. Second, he would give him a multitude of descendants, and third, that he would make Abram famous and Abram and his descendants would be a blessing to the entire world. You can look this up on the internet. It would be a great thing to talk uh, with the kids. I've had this email a couple of times since the Hamas war and it is accurate and it lists all of the uh, Nobel Peace Prizes and other awards like that that have been won by Arabs and Muslims. And then it lists all of those that have been won by Jews. I think there's four or five that Muslims have won, and there's just hundreds that Jews have won. They are a blessing to the world, uh, from science to medicine to finance. Um, just they've been a blessing to the whole world. Hebrews 11:8 tells us, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance property possession. And he went out not knowing where he was going. If God told you, said, look, I want you to pack your bags, get in your car tomorrow and leave everything behind and I'm going to take you to a place that I'll tell you about eventually. Would you do it? Abraham trusted God. Abraham is called the friend of God three times in Scripture. Isn't that amazing? That tells us something about God, God as a person. He is a, Abraham is his friend. Uh, verse 9, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a uh, foreign country, a dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He didn't own any property. He never saw the fulfillment. God said, I'm going to give you land. But at the end of his life when Sarah died, he had to buy a piece of land to bury her. That's the only real estate he, he ever had. God has to resurrect him to give him land so that he, that promise will be fulfilled. So the three components are land, descendants or seed and worldwide blessing. They're expanded in these other covenants. We'll talk about later the land covenant, the the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. They're all eternal. In 12.7 we read, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give you this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then in Genesis 13:14 we see the, uh, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are northward, southward, eastward and westward for all the land which you see I give to your descendants for the next several centuries. Or until the Arabs come up or until Hamas invades. No, forever and ever. And that is what you see over and over and over again. One of the interesting things that I did was to um, go through and take a look at all the passages I could identify in Genesis. And there's at least some passages are, well, you could say it's a reiteration of the covenant or maybe Abram is retelling one of his sons what God promised him. So some people may vary on the number, but there's 13 places where the covenant with Abraham is reiterated. To Abram several times, and then to Isaac. And uh, God will say to Isaac, as I swore to your father Abraham. And then to Jacob. And so this is very much a, a part of it, a constant reminder. In Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 isn't the covenant itself, it's the components of the covenant, but the covenant isn't actually made until Genesis 15. So you have this promise in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13 uh, that foresee what's going to happen. So we see this timeline of Abram's life, this is a chart from their material you have the call of Abram in Genesis 12, 1-9, to leave. He's going to dwell in tents. And then the covenant itself is made in Genesis 15, 1-21. Uh, we can compare it with the Noahic covenant. Over here, the par- you have four categories here. Who are the parties? The parties in the Noahic covenant, God makes it with Noah, his family, and with all the animals. In the Abrahamic covenant, God is making this covenant with Abram and all of his descendants, which means not us. It's to the, those who are descendants, not through Ishmael, but through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's the Jewish people today. The promise in to Noah was no future global floods. God would not destroy the earth by water again. In the Abrahamic covenants, it's land, seed, and blessing. Land, descendants, and worldwide blessing. The signatories, God alone signs the Noahic covenant with the rainbow. There's not a condition that, that, okay, if you're obedient, if you don't screw up again, if you don't rebel again, then I won't destroy the earth by, by water. It's an unconditional unilateral. That means God himself binds himself to the covenant. It didn't matter whether Noah liked it or not. Same thing with Abraham. God alone, because what'll happen is they they take the sacrificial animals. Abraham cuts them in half, lays them out, and then God puts Abraham to sleep. And God, symbolized by a torch, moves between the parts of the animal, showing that God alone binds Himself to that covenant. So it doesn't. It's not based on any behavior are any conditions on the part of Abraham. It's a one-sided, unilateral covenant. So both of these are unconditional. God's going to keep His promise. So we look at the parties to the Abrahamic covenant. I've stated it already in the previous chart. It is God, the party of the first part, and Abraham and his descendants, the party of the second part, as an everlasting, eternal covenant covenant that cannot be broken. And so we have to take that into account. All of those provisions are still in effect. The legal terms of the Abrahamic covenant are a land with specific boundaries. God identified what those boundaries were. In Genesis 13:14. he says, uh, lift your eyes, look from this place where you are, which would have been somewhere up north of Jerusalem northward southward eastward and westward for all the land which you see i give to you and your descendants later he's more specific in in the actual covenant itself in genesis 15:18 and through 21 he made a covenant to your descendants i have given you this land from the river of egypt now there's debate over this some people say the river of egypt is the nile Other people say the river of Egypt is Wadi el-Arish. I tend, from what I've read, I lean that way, that that's uh, more likely. And that does not include the Sinai Peninsula, but it does include Gaza. It includes that whole area um, along the Mediterranean. And um, so that lays it out. Uh, The land has these specific borders, and it's given, it's all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their god. So here's map that they have in their material. So the Wadi El Arish is somewhere down here. It's after it makes this curve to the, the, the coast, makes its curve to the west. It's right in here. And then Gaza's right up here. It's about straight across from here, so it's right about there. And we see it a little better on this map I used on Sunday. So you see the brook of Egypt is down here after it's made its turn to the west and then Gaza's up here. So all of this territory is the territory of the tribal allotments that, that J- Joshua laid out. And then the covenant itself includes all of the shaded area. See, according to this map which was done by Lagos, they're taking uh, the Nile as the western border as opposed to the Brook of Egypt, so these are the uh, debated issue, and then it goes all the way up to the Euphrates. So that's all of the Promised Land. Now some maps I've seen will take this and extend it due east all the way to the Euphrates. That would pick up all of the area of uh, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan and everything else. So we've got these legal, the legal terms, uh, Genesis 22:17. Now pay attention to this. I've taught you all this before. You should have notes in your Bible on this. This is after the sacrifice that, got, where God provides a ram as a substitute for, for Isaac. And God reiterates the covenant. He says, Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendant. Now notice uh, it's I have it's a plural here, but I corrected it to a singular here. Now when you look at this word in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for seed is zera, and it, it's a collective noun. It's like the word deer. I saw one deer. I saw two deer. I saw three deer. Used to be shrimp, but now you have people who put an S on the end of shrimp. I, I can't even say it. Uh, <laughs> So you have these collective nouns. You talk about offspring. You don't have two, uh, two offsprings. You have one offspring, two offspring, three offspring. That's a collective noun. Okay, Zerah is like that. But you have to look at context to understand whether it's many or one. So when it says multiplying, I will multiply your descendants, well, multiplication indicates a plurality, right? So I, So here it's going to be descendants plural. But then he gets down here and he says and your descendant shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's the corrected translation. The Hebrew word for enemies has a third person singular suffix on the end. Third person singular is he. Third person plural is there. Nearly every translation I've ever seen has it as there because it's plural up here. But the pronoun, if we believe in inerrancy and verbal inspiration, this is a messianic prophecy. Your descendant, singular, the one who will uh, be the seed of the woman, will possess the gate of his enemies. He will have victory. So this is a messianic prophecy. And what happened in the early church age is in order to change and confuse the issues on Messianic prophecies, there were rabbis who went in and changed translations and did some, changed some vowel points and other things in order to muddy the waters. Genesis twenty two eighteen says, in your seed, see it goes right on, so I'm thinking this is a singular, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And that is referring to Jesus. Jesus is the seed. Now in G- Galatians, and first time I figured this out was studying Galatians because you read this passage and Paul is quoting from the Old Testament and then you start to find it, and you can't find it. He says in Galatians 3.16, like John 3.16, sometimes read through the 3.16s in the Bible, they're really interesting. Um, now to Abraham and his seed singular promises were made. He does not say and to seeds as of many but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. He makes an issue out of the fact that it's a singular instead of a plural but as I showed you in the Hebrew it's a zerah it doesn't have a plural. So what's he basing this on? He's basing it on the Septuagint translation where when the rabbis translated it, they understood it correctly, and they translated the second Zerah, the second descendant, as the singular sperma in the Greek, because sperma has a plural. So they have this plural in the in the first part, where it's you multiply your descendants, and there it has the plural form of sperma, and then when it gets to uh, the descendant who will uh, uh, destroy his enemies they translated that with the singular and so paul makes an issue out of that and says this shows the inerrancy of scripture extends down to plural or singular fascinating argument okay so the legal terms the third one is worldwide blessing and this involves the fact that they are going to be the custodians of scripture uh, Romans 3, 2, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So they're going to be the custodians of Scripture so God can make, give his message to all mankind. Uh, the blessing of the Messiah in Isaiah forty three ten through 11. Um, God's servant, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Now in Isaiah forty three ten I misspoke just a second ago. This is talking to Israel as his servant. Uh, the servant in Isaiah can refer to Israel as a whole, Israel in terms of only the, um, only the remnant, and then as the individual as in Isaiah 53. Uh, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. But, and so this is talking about the fact that they are the custodians of Scripture. Uh, they will preserve history and truth for the world. So this is the key here. And that you have pagan culture, but God called Abraham to separate from the culture and create a counterculture. And then counterculture sends missionaries to the pagan culture. Second thing is, uh, God will provide the worldwide blessing through the promised seed, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. John 4.22 you, uh, you, Jesus told the woman at the well, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. God's plan was the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be the source through which salvation would come. Genesis 3, 8, 9, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying in you all the nations shall be blessed so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham and so Romans 158 affirms this when Paul closes and says now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God circumcision being the Jewish people descendants of Abraham circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is writ- written for this reason I will confess you to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. So he shows there that Abrahamic covenant is to bless all. Okay, that brings us to the Uh, Close in the signing of the covenant, uh, which is where we will begin uh, next Tuesday night. Anybody have any questions? Y'all never heard any of that before, did you? One or two things. All right. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to see how your plan works itself out bit by bit through history, and that it is all under your control. So Father, help us to continue to see how you are working things out through the scriptures you've revealed it. In Christ's name, amen.